My name is Matt. I am uh, one of the pastors here and um, excited to be with you this morning. Uh, the book of Judges is, um, is Game of Thrones meets the Bible, in case you're wondering. Uh, if you've been reading the book of Judges, you know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, we've been, as a church, in a season where we're reading through the scriptures together, and which means that we're encountering all kinds of narratives about the reality of God's people um, who have been God's covenant people from the beginning as God came to Abraham and said, you're going to be my people. And then he came to, to Moses and brought them out of Egypt. And then, and then through jo Joshua brought them into the land and said, I'm going to be your covenant God, follow me. And then we get to the end of the book of Joshua and, and Joshua says, hey, I'm following God. The rest of you, what are you going to do? And they say, we're going to follow God too. It's like, this is great. You can almost feel the anticipation. You know what's coming? Like we're about to have decades and decades, maybe centuries of the power of God manifested through his people, through his people in the land of Israel. But that's not what happens. The book of Judges begins immediately and what we see is everything falls apart. All the people of Israel start doing the refrain that happens over and over in the book of Judges. They did what was right in their own eyes and we see what's called the cycle of the Judges begins. The cycle is pretty straightforward and it happens multiple times during the book of Judges. So if you want to understand this book, you kind of have to understand the cycle. It begins with the people of God rebelling and saying, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. We're going to go our own way and follow after the gods of the, of the Canaanites, the people that live here. We're not going to follow our God anymore. And so God sees them. He says, okay, then I'm going to give you into the hands of those that you say you want to follow. And they are oppressed by oppressors. That's the second step of the cycle. And then the, the people of God under oppression cry out to God and say, deliver us. And so God hears them, and he sends a judge, a rescuer, a redeemer, someone who's going to come in, and he's going to bring restoration to his people, and he does, or she does. So the judges come in and bring redemption to a people who've cried out, and there is reprieve, there's rescue, there's peace, there's, fr there's fruitfulness, there's flourishing. But then once again, the people do what is evil. They do what is right in their own eyes, and they, once again, go after the other gods, and the cycle begins. Again, that's the book of Judges, just over and over and over. And if there's one thing that the book of Judges is pointing out to us about people, not just those people, but people in general, like all of us, is that left to ourselves without the grace of God, we will run after the ways to take care of ourselves every time. What's crazy is that the, the, the children of Israel, right, this people that God had pulled aside for himself, their purpose, the reason God did that is they were supposed to be a nation of priests, they were supposed to be a whole people group who were going to live in the midst of other nations, and those nations were supposed to see them and say, "You, through you, we understand what rescue looks like. You're bringing redemption and rescue to us through you. We understand that. You're a nation of rescuers. But instead what we find is Israel is the one that has to be rescued. It's like driving by a fire station that's on fire. Like, not helpful so much anymore, right? It's like a dump, like one of those... Um, like a, uh, what are those called? The, um, the thing that pulls cars out of ditches in one of the ditches. Tow truck, thank you. That was a participatory component. So tow truck being in the ditch. This is Israel. They, they are the tow truck in the ditch that can't get themselves out. And so God sends judges. Just as the people who've been brought out to be a deliverance need to be delivered, they are a microcosm. And of course, Samson is a microcosm of Israel because he just looks exactly like Israel. He's the worst of the judges. I mean, frankly, he's, he's an embarrassment to what judges were supposed to be, and yet there he is taking up four chapters of the Bible. 
What's God doing here? What's he trying to show us? He's showing us a picture of our own hearts in it. And in Samson and the people of Israel this morning, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see Samson's blindness. And his blindness, of course, can be our blindness. We're going to see Samson's blindness. We're going to see God's unwanted rescue. And third, we're going to see the hope for Samson and for us and for Israel. So let's look about Samson's blindness. I think one of the things that's really important in understanding the story of Samson is not the way if you went to church growing up and you heard the story of Samson, like he's not the hero. Samson is a hot mess. Everything he does seems to go from bad to worse. That's not how it began, but this Samson is blind. He's both morally and spiritually weak. And Samson doesn't see several things. The first thing he doesn't see, Samson doesn't see past his impulses to his calling. See, Samson had been set apart as a Nazarite, like from his birth. Before he's even born, there's this exciting moment where an angel of the Lord comes to his parents and says, you're barren, but there's going to be this, there's going to be this son that's born to you. And in the Bible, when there's a barren woman and a son is promised, something exciting or significant is about to happen, or so we would think. And so we understand that there's three things, right? He's not supposed to drink strong drink. He's not supposed to uh, touch things that are unclean, like dead things. And he's, he's not supposed to cut his hair. And that will be a declaration, not just of his covenant to God, but of the fact that God is about to work and move. And so you get all the way to the end of that first chapter, and it's like, it's like being on the precipice of excitement. It says, the Spirit of the Lord began to move in Samson. And the next chapter opens, and it's like, yeah, so Samson saw this woman and from the Philistines, and he's like, hey, Dad, go get her for me. That's how we go. That's, that's the next step. You're like, oh, no. He's blind to his impulses. He has to have what he wants now. And in that beginning of chapter, four, in chapter 14, what we see is in 10 verses, Samson, like, breaks all of the things. Well, not the hair. But everything but the hair, because we all know about the hair and Samson's hair. Everything but that, right? He goes and a lion attacks him and says that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He tears the lion apart. But then later on he goes, this is while he's trying to hook up with his Philistine girlfriend, fiance. So, so the, the lion is dead. He comes back around and there's some bees inside the carcass of the dead lion that he know he killed. And he goes and he scoops up the honey and he brings some and he gives it to his parents. It becomes impure and becomes unclean and breaks his covenant and vow before the Lord which the Lord had given to him to live out. He forfeits his calling by his impulses. And then he has a big party, and everyone's drinking and getting drunk, and, and lots, of, lots, of, um, lots of friends are there. And, it, and so he's, he's drinking strong drink. He's touching dead things. And within 10 verses, Samson is like, okay, clearly you're not the hero, not the hero that we were expecting or anticipating. You're not living up to the basis, the very simple reality of what your call was. Samson doesn't see past his impulses to his calling. He also doesn't see past his own appetites. It's probably fair to say that Samson should probably be an essay today. Like here's a guy who is driven by his sexual appetite, by his sensual appetite, his need and desire to be affirmed and loved by a woman as defining of who he is. Samson, one person said, is the least free superhero. Because he does have that, you know, like Captain America kind of like can take on anything and anyone super strong, but he's so weak, he's, he's frail in his heart and he's not free. 
And you see him using the very refrain that the people of Israel have been using. He says in verse 14 of, um, verse seven of, sorry, verse three of chapter 14, he says to his, to his father, get her for me. Why? For she is right in my eyes. He can't see past his own appetites, his own idolatry. Feels good, it's gotta be right, it can't be wrong. And so he, he goes and he courts this fiance, and of course she ends up turning on him and ends up sneaking the answer to one of the riddles that he gives his companions three times in a row. He ends up falling for it, and after he does all kinds of crazy stuff like, you know, like setting the tails of um, torches on the tails of, of jackals into fields and setting fields on fire, I mean, all kinds of wild stuff that we didn't have time to read that happened find ourselves with him so driven and drawn that he, he goes to a, a prostitute in a town and then in the middle of the night just tears up the gates of the city. There's no continuity or, or congruity between the reality of his covenant with God and, and the reality of his addiction, the reality of that he has to have sexual pleasure at all costs. He has to have companionship at all costs. He has to have her, whoever she might be, at all costs. And Delilah, of course, is the most famous and obviously the most deadly. If you think about the wildness of the story, and we, we jumped over the couple sections there where, where Delilah keeps humming to him because she's looking, Delilah's got a god, right? Her god is money. She wants that 1,100 uh, coins of silver from the five kings. She wants that. So she's after money, and she'll sacrifice Samson, and Samson will sacrifice God for Delilah. And she says, Samson, like, just tell me how you'll get weak. And, and he tells her the first time, but he, he just does, tells her, doesn't tell her the truth. And so he snaps his bonds, and she's all hurt and sad. And he does this three times, each time getting a little closer to the truth, a little closer to the reality of what it'll mean for him to forfeit his covenant to God. He's driven. He's blind to his passions. He's blind to his idolatry. And, of course, eventually he tells her. And he tells her because she says these words. She says, you say that you love me. You say that you love me. And Samson must have her know that he loves her because of what it will do for him. That's what the addict must have. I have to have it. All other loves, all other priorities have become subservient to Samson's desire because he has to have her. His disordered desires make him blind. The thing that's on the throne of my life, the thing that's on the throne of your life, at the end of the day is the only thing that's safe. Everything else at some point or another becomes subservient to that, and we see it smack dab in the middle of Samson's life right here. The love of God, the covenant of God, the promises of God were not on the throne of Samson's heart. Delilah was. And so he sells God's covenant and God's promises for love. Even though any of us would look at Samson, who's clearly not the brightest tool, and say, after two times when they come breaking in and, 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 and they're like, Samson, the, the, the Philistines are upon you, surely he's going to pick up on that reality, but that's how blind he is. He's not just a fool, though he is a fool. According to Proverbs, clearly he's a fool in how he acts, but he's blinded to it. And loved ones, this is what it looks like in us. Become blinded by our passions 
our idolatries. We have to have it. Which leads Samson, of course, to his final blindness. He's unable to see past his pride in his own strength. He's blind to his spiritual weakness and to his invariable, inevitable weakness without God. He knows the things about God, but he doesn't seem to know the reality of God. He's not living. It's not alive in him. And so we see this tragic, sad moment in chapter 16, verse 20, when it says, when he stands up, having had all his head shaved off and not knowing it, and it says, he says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Oh, you can just feel it. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to just, just like before. It's worked every other time. I'm just going to go shake myself off of this. But he did not know. He had lost sight that his strength came from the Lord. He would peddle off the reality of what is true about him and his covenant relationship with God for just a little bit of love, maybe a little bit of, maybe just a little bit of sex with Delilah, just, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. He interprets his strength and power as, as permission or that somehow he's the exception because after all, he's exceptional, Right? He's blind to his, presumptive, to his presumptive pride. He's become a deliverer who can't deliver himself. They take him, they trap him, they gouge out his eyes. He finds himself in prison, grinding in his cell. Tragic irony, the man who lived in order to only do what was right in his own eyes, ends up blind. It was never enough. See, Samson has God's power, but he doesn't have God's heart. Samson has been used by God, but he hasn't been changed by God. And loved ones, I think sometimes we place a greater value on being impactful than we do on being holy, on being effective or being successful, whether in a church context, in a, in a spiritual context, or any other context. If you're successful, well, then surely that's just like holiness, right? And that's, that's actually the greater mark, the greater bar. What Samson shows us and what unfortunately the scriptures show us over and over again is that gifting is not equal character. It doesn't equal heart change. That being used is not the same thing as being changed. And this is the warning that Romans 2 gives us through the Apostle Paul for that very thing. He says, do not suppose, O man or woman, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you kind of do them yourself, maybe in secret, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you, listen, presume on the riches of his kindness, which is who God is, and forbearance, which is who God is, and patience, which is who God is, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, 
But because of your hard heart and imp- your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is presuming upon the kindness of God. Shake himself off as before. I'm just going to go after what's right in my own eyes. So uh, this screams the question, what are you doing? What are you chasing that is right in your own eyes? What's the, what's the thing that you would condone, I'm sorry, you would condemn publicly, but that internally you're in agreement because it's what you're living? You see, Samson says, he tells Delilah, this is what will happen to me, but he doesn't believe it will happen. He presumes upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of the Lord. Are you presuming upon the kindness? It's meant to lead you to repentance, not permission. And Samson is maybe the greatest biblical example of permissive faith. I'm just going to do what I really want. I'm just going to hold off on one thing that's holy, my hair. That's the holy thing that I have with God. All the other stuff doesn't really matter. I'm just doing my own thing. Because he's fulfilled, after all, right? Which is which is what everyone wants. It should be fulfilled. You you be you be you, boo. Like that's that's what we want, right? Look at Samson. He gets to be everything he wanted to be, and he ends up blind in a prison cell, grinding wheat for his enemies. That's what sin does. Like that happens when we step away from God's covenant. Like His good purposes are good for a reason. We don't believe them because we don't have Him on the throne of our life. What ways are you being used but not being changed? Are there things that you're doing that you're, you're killing it? Are there ways in which you have the appearance of spirituality, but, but you're not being turned into someone who looks like Jesus? You know about, but you don't know of. That's, candidly, the greatest cancer in the church, right? It's having the form of godliness, but not any of its power. And, and I, I think the picture of the American church is a lot like that. And, and it's in us. It's in all of us, right? A syncretism, like a little of this as long as I get to do this. And God's saying this is, this is not what it looks like. It leads to death. And it is a blindness all along that will lead to blindness. Well, that's Samson's blindness. Then we have God's unwanted rescue. So you have Samson's story over here. It's its own thing. God's interacting and engaging with Samson. And then you've got this unwanted rescue. What do I mean by that? In Judges chapter 15, verse 11, we read, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etham, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Which is super mature, right? Um, and they said to him, We have come down to bind you, 
that you, we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Think about this. These are 3,000 men of Judah, right? Which, by the way, tells you a little bit about, like, how powerful Samson was. But these are like his people. Right, the Philistines have come, and they've, like, attacked a little bit in, in Judah. They're like, what's going on? Why are you guys here? And they're like, because Samson. We're coming to get him. And they're like, it's okay. We'll get him for you. And they go off at 3,000 strong, come to Samson. And they, what do they say to him? They don't say, have you come to bring rescue to Israel? Is that why you're here? We've been under, we've been under the oppression of the, of the Philistines. And, and this is freedom? Are you one of the judges? Clearly something's going on. No, they say, listen, why are you making a mess? Samson, what, what are you doing? You're trying to undo the thing that we actually want to just keep this way. Don't disrupt the status quo. In the past with Barak or Gideon, they blow the trumpet and the people of Israel rise up, right? They go, to, they go to fight. They go to take on the enemies of God to, to be able to bring freedom and restoration. That's not what happens here. They all bring, they tie Samson up. They tie their judge up and turn him over to their enemy. What's going on here? Of course, they bring him down to the Philistines, and what happens? Samson snaps his rope, grabs a jawbone, and kills a thousand of them. You know what's happening? God's picking a fight with the Philistines. You know why? Because unlike a lot of the other countries, a lot of the other nations that oppressed Israel, like the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites, remember the Midianites come in, they're like locusts, it says, they just eat everything. They take all the crops that have been made. That's not what the Philistines were like. The Philistines, were, they were great warriors. They, they took on Egypt, but, but, they, but they were not cruel in their oppression. Their gig was assimilation. We're going to intertwine you with us economically and socially and, and religiously. They, they borrowed gods. Dagon wasn't their god originally. They just borrowed him in. Turns out he ended up winning. So he's on top of all the other gods. This is, this is what the Philistines were like. And all they're saying is like, you come and be a part of us. Now, you don't have a choice, but, but, but if you'll willingly come and be a part of what we're a part of, then by all means, take our daughters as your, as your wives and, and we'll take your sons as, as our sons-in-law. And let's, let's become just a people mixed together. And what's at stake here is the very survival of the faith of Israel, the very covenantal relationship that God had with his people, the very set-apartness that he had, he had come and rescued them from Egypt to bring about the redemption of the world is at stake right here. And Israel is saying, let's just let it be. Let's just keep the, this, is, this is working. It's not ideal, but it's working. What are you doing to us, Samson? Just like Mel Gibson, the Braveheart, 1996 reference, God's going to pick a fight. Pick a fight, I believe is how he says it. That's exactly what he's doing. God's picking a fight with the Philistines so that Israel will not become completely embedded in their life. He's picking a fight for them by picking a fight with their enemies. And he's doing it with Samson. He's trying to bring out redemption and rescue for them when they're not even asking for it. God's doing something in this story. Something that that the people he's doing it for don't even see, and that the people, the man that he's using to do it doesn't understand. Think about that. 
God is bringing about a rescue for a people who don't want it by a man who doesn't understand that he's doing. He's spiritually immature. He doesn't understand what he's not. He doesn't understand the depths of what God's working on right now. He's just going about being Samson, and God is using him. Think about what it says. What's it in Judges? Um, Judges fourteen. He's going down to, to, to marry this woman. And his parents are like, isn't there someone else from among the, 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 our, our community that you can marry? And it says this. This is commentary. It says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Loved ones, God will go to extreme lengths to unseat the idolatry, the ways in which we just belong into the world, the way in which we made our lives okay with the things that are countered to the life that God offers us. He will go to great lengths. He will pick a fight with you for you. Like, that's how much he loves you. Understand, that's what love does, right? It goes after the one that's run away. It goes after the one that's, that's saying, you know what, I'm just going to figure out my own way in this. And God fights for them. He sends sin. And, and how does he do it? by having them turn over their very own rescuer to their enemies. Sound familiar? They take the one who has come to be their rescuer by the hand of God, and they turn him over to their enemies because he's messing up their world. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. God will use all means all means. They've rejected God. They've rejected Samson. They would one day reject Jesus. And that kind of kind of intermingling, interweaving with the way that is, is real today, right? And you don't understand, like things have changed. The Bible's a little archaic the ways in which the, that was maybe true, but we've come to a greater understanding now of how human development works. And so, therefore, there's all kinds of things that are totally okay that the Bible just didn't understand at the time, you see? Because we're enlightened and, and progressive and thoughtful, and we understand things. And, and God didn't totally get it, or these people didn't get it, and so we're going to reinterpret things for God that suit our way. We're just going to inter, intermingle a little, just interwoven. We become comfortable with our chains, right? Why do we do this? Because convenience of compromise is way easier than the pain of repentance. The convenience of our compromise is way easier than the pain of what it would cost to repent, and so we justify our chains, right? Just like Israel's like, I know they're, they're, they're oppressing us, but, but you don't understand. The reason why we need to keep doing this is because, like, you don't understand my background. You don't understand, you don't understand what I grew up with. You don't understand what I've had to deal with. You don't understand what's going on in me. You don't understand my desires are leaning in this particular way. And so clearly God couldn't be against that. I mean, he made me and he loves me. That means... So we justify our chains. And we won't let go of the things that hold us captive. There's like a built-in army right there with Samson. I mean, just like in all the other moments in the book of Judges, right there's 3,000 guys that are ready to fight. They're ready to fight Samson. 
miss the moment. They don't want to let go of the thing that holds them captive. They're not free, but they don't want to let go of the thing that's holding them captive. That's exactly how all addiction works. That's how all idolatry ultimately works. It says, I can't let go of this. You guys know the monkey trap, right? You guys remember the monkey trap? It's like the oldest thing. People like in Asia and Africa, whatever, you catch monkeys. Simplest way to catch a monkey is like in some kind of like a closed gourd or something like that. Like you put a, a nut or something inside and you cut a little hole in the front that's just the size enough of a hand to go in but not to be able to come out holding anything else. You strap that thing to the ground, you let a monkey come along, he puts his hand there, grabs the nut, tries to pull out and he can't because the nut is too big to go out with the fist. And the monkey will stay there and be captured, or be killed, be eaten. And people will come around, and there's the monkey sitting right there. All he has to do is let go and run. Because no one runs as fast as a monkey, right? But he won't let go. Why? Because it has become his possession. And he, he can't let it go. It's the oldest adage, but it's the truest thing. And you see it in Samson, and here you see it in an entire nation. They're unwilling to let go of their own chains. And loved ones, this is what we do. We get enslaved and chained and stuff, and we're unwilling to let it go. And the spiritual equivalent is 127 hours, right? That's what God does when he picks a fight. You guys remember 127 hours? It's the guy who's climbing and the boulder falls over and it crushes his arm and he can't get out and he's going to die. Five days later, he finally decides what he's going to do. He's going to cut his arm off. That's, that's the spiritual movement. That's what it means. And frankly, loved ones, if this is you, if you're in a Samson world where you're like, you're stuck because you're holding onto something, you can't let go of like God's kindness and his invitation and his goodness and potentially his very rescue is going to be either to invite you to cut your own arm off because it's going to feel like though all you'd have to do is let go or by his grace he will cut your arm off for you and none of one wants their arm to be cut off and that's a little bit brutal in imagery but think about it life and death like that's, that's what the love of God does. It chases after us. He's after a people who don't even want to be rescued. Like that's the kind of God we have. Loved ones, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're running or pretending or if you're, you're trapped, but like he's after you. And he's after you maybe in small ways or maybe he's after you in some big ways, but like he is after you because he's that kind of a God. He is a rescuing God. And he sent us someone that we didn't ask for because we didn't know we had to have him, but he's the only one that would rescue us. And so Samson, like us, like Israel, all need the same hope. They all need the same rescue. We need a better judge. We need a better Samson, right? Samson needs a better Samson. We all need a better judge than this. We need someone, a better rescuer, a better deliverer who's going to free us from the things that have us trapped the things in which we can't even tell ourselves apart anymore, the things that we're distracting ourselves with unto numbing ourselves to death. Loved ones, we are numbing ourselves to death in this culture. God wants us alive. He wants you alive. He's got a call for you. You're a Nazarite. Like you're covenanted to the Lord by the death of Jesus. You understand? Like that's what he's done. So we let go or we let him cut it off because he has something for us. He's made us for something. He's made you for something. And the only way we're ever going to let go of that thing is to believe that there is something greater to seize, which is why Jesus is the way better Samson, right? He's the true and better Samson in so many ways. Yeah, he also had a birth that was unexpected, unpredicted. Yes, he got betrayed by someone he loved with, for silver. All those things are true, but you know what? Like, he's the one who, at the end of his life, is put, bet put between not two pillars to be able to push them down to destroy his enemies, 
But Jesus' arms are stretched out so that he could bring about life for his enemies. That's, that's the power of the beauty of Jesus. Like Samson, in the end, does, does have a restoration. It's why he's in the faith annals, right? It's why he's in, in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Samson. Yeah, I know. This Samson. Because it appears all the way in the end, even though it was still mixed, because he's like, for my eyes, it's still about me, but also, please, Lord. He uses the word, Lord God. Adonai Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Will you please, he restores, will you please, will you please just one more time, give me the strength. Not the strength that I have on my own. I know I don't have it. You have it. This is what it means to turn over our lives to God and say, you're the one who's going to give me life. And by faith, Samson dies and lives out his calling in it. It's not pretty. But he was alive there. You see, there's this whole death and life motif, right? Throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And it's only in seeing the death of Jesus for us that we find ourselves being able to choose life. It's the only way. We have to see him pushing down the building, not to kill his enemies, but to gain his enemies. He, he extends grace so that those of us, by the way, that's us, the enemies, in case you're wondering, we're the Philistines in the story, so that we could not just be made neutral, but that we would be called friends, right? Sons and daughters of God. Like, you know the best way to turn an enemy, like, towards something good is not to kill him, but to turn him into a friend. That's what God does through Christ and grace. Grace turns enemies into friends, into sons and daughters, and so you are, Scripture says. It's like, you want to be free? Like, you got to get back to that. You got to come home to that reality, which is exactly what this table is, right? This meal is just a reminder. It's an invitation to, to take back in the depth and the beauty and the power of the one who, like, for our sake, like, carried on faith all the way through to the end for our sake, and we remember it. And so we're, we're animated. We're remade in Christ through taking in this reality into our bodies and, more significantly, into our souls, that we would not just be a people who experience the power of God, but that we would be people who are changed by God. Normally, you know, when it's not COVID, we get to come forward, right? And so I would invite you to rise up, just like the prophets did to the, you know, I mean, just like the judges did to all the, the children of Israel, like, rise up, blow the horn, rise up. Let us come forward. Let's leave behind the thing that is entangling you, right, which we read earlier. Leave behind that, that thing you're hanging on to. Let it go. Come forward and receive the better thing. The better thing. Like he's better than any Delilah in your life. You, you may not believe that. Or you may not feel that right now. You may, may not seem that that's true, but, but if you will move towards him, he promises to draw near to you. If you will humble yourself and say, I don't decide how life is, I move towards you. He says, I am near to the brokenhearted. I come to the humble. I have proximity. I'm present with the humble. And he does so today in his body and blood for you. So you don't deserve it. You don't get to shake yourself off of this. You're not, not going to shake yourself off of whatever you're hanging on to. I promise you that. It doesn't work. You'll just be proud of how you did it, and it'll be worse than you when you began. But if you will let go and let him take you and move you towards something that is more powerful and beautiful, that you would hold on to him, oh, man. We'd be a different people. We'd be a changed people. Not just powerful, but changed. That's what God has for us. We are Nazarites, loved ones, called by God, by covenant, by love, by death, so that you may live. It's the story of the gospel for you. Let's pray.
Father, um, as we come to this table, as we uh, take in this, the, the body of Christ broken, his blood shed for us, like what we do so today, and what we desire to do is, is, to, is to release, to, to, to let go, and we and more significantly, we want you to, to search our hearts. Like some of us might be dragging our gourd with us up to the table. And you'll receive us, Lord, imperfect and broken and incomplete as we are, just like Samson. And so, Lord, would you, would you search us and know our hearts? Would you see if there's any wicked ways in us? And would you lead us in the way everlasting? Would you use the body of Christ, his perfect life and death for us, his, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins? Would you use those tools, those things, as, as the deconstructors, as, the, uh, as turning all things pale in comparison? Like, we can't make that happen, Lord. Like, it's just not possible. Delilah will always look more attractive on the surface. But by your spirit, you can make the reality of how beautiful and awesome and glorious and worthy of praise you are, like, come alive in our souls and move us towards you that we may know and love you more. That's what we long for, Lord, to know and love you more that we may worship you with all of our hearts. So we give ourselves to you by Christ, for Christ, to the glory of God the Father. His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're at home, this is your opportunity to take your elements and to take communion. If you're in the room, uh, grab your cups and in your time, uh, receive the body of Christ broken and his blood shed for you.